Welcome in to another edition of Locked On Nationals. I'm your host, Ryan Clary, and thank you guys for making Locked On Nationals your first listen every day. We are free and available wherever you get your podcast. And so on today's show, I have a special guest with me, Grant Paulson from 106.7 The Fan, and we're going to get in all of the Nationals headlines going into this offseason and have some of his thoughts on the Juan Soto trade return right after this. You are Locked On Nationals, your daily Washington Nationals podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And so we bring in Grant Paulson from the Grant and Danny show on 1067 The Fan. Grant, what's going on, man? How are we doing? Ryan, what's up? Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Pumped for you to be on uh, Locked On doing your own show every day. That's pretty cool. Thank you, man. And, and you know, if people don't know, I'm actually the producer for the Grant and Danny show over on 1067 The Fan. So uh, Grant and I talk to each other pretty regularly. Every day we see each other, and I'm sure that doesn't get old for you, Grant, does it? <laughs> no, never. We also eat a lot of subs together. Yes. Um, that's cornucopia. We like to discuss Nats baseball and eat subs. Those are two of our hobbies. Exactly. And so, actually, I kind of want to get started with this. And back in April, I don't even know if you'd remember this, we were kind of kicking around the possibility of a Juan Soto trade. And obviously, that's been the biggest headline this offseason, or really this whole MLB season in general where you have Aaron Judge, he's hitting home run records, breaking Robert Maris's record uh, and all that. But Juan Soto trading him is kind of something that we've never really seen before. We've never really seen someone like him get traded at such a young age. And so going back to that in April when we were talking about this, it was kind of hard to imagine a team to even that would want to bring up all these prospects and tr- ship them away for this guy. Kind of how did this come into fruition with the Nationals and and where is this leading to? Yeah, I mean, I remember when we first were talking about it, and this was like you said, a couple of weeks into the season when we knew the Nats weren't going to be particularly good. If you couldn't trade Juan Soto, uh, excuse me, if you couldn't sign Juan Soto, you might have to consider trading him. We try to just figure out, is it even possible for them to get a return good enough to justify moving this guy? Because there was a while where I didn't think that those uh, circles would overlap in a Venn diagram, Mm -hmm. right? Like what you would have to get back for Juan Soto, a team being willing to give that much up. I kind of thought it was just too narrow of a lane to kind of walk. It wasn't going to work. You weren't going to be able to land that plane. But if you remember, I think the team we jokingly said at the time were like, what about the Orioles? You know, they got all yeah. the you got Gunnar Henderson and Hadley Rutschman and Gunnar uh, and uh, Grayson Rodriguez. You could go through their whole litany of prospects. The problem with that, obviously, and people listening to Locked On Nationals knows this already, uh, that, that those two teams have never made a trade. They're the only two teams that, the, you know, that haven't made a trade. The Nats yeah. and the Orioles do not make trades, period. The Masson disputes, the organizations don't really like each other. So, But we were just kind of joking about what it would take, and it was hard to find a trade partner. Uh, obviously, ultimately, it was the Padres that separated themselves. I think the Dodgers were serious. I think there were some other teams, including the Cardinals, that were really interested, even though mm-hmm. 
you know, they weren't willing to foot the bill the same way that San Diego and LA were from what I always gathered. But what happened was, and you'll remember the report that came out during the all-star break, I was actually sitting in my hotel about to go to the futures game over the weekend in Los Angeles during the break. And the story dropped. I don't remember if it was passing or Rosenthal or who had it. I think it was Rosenthal. Yeah. That the Nats had offered Soto the massive contract that they did and he had turned it down and that they were now seriously going to consider shopping him. And at that moment it got real, man, because I think what happened was, and having now talked since then to people on every side of this thing, I believe the nationals all along assumed that they could get a deal in place with Soto. When they made that offer, it became really clear, not only that that wasn't going to be accepted, but that no offer was going to be accepted. And I think they came to a reality, and maybe Scott Boris would say this wasn't the case if you talk to him, but their decision was made based on they believed that Juan Soto was eventually going to free agency, that there was nothing realistic. And I'm not saying cheap. I just mean there was no deal other than something astronomical and unprecedented and ridiculous that you shouldn't even offer probably that he was going to accept. And they decided that, I think the the adage that we used on our show a lot, Ryan, was true, which is the best time to trade Juan Soto is never, and the second best time to trade Juan Soto is today, meaning get as much back for this guy as possible. Three postseasons is better than two, is better than one. You know, a half of a a third year is better than just two full years this offseason. And so I think what changed everything was when they made the big offer that they did, which Soto should not have accepted, I will readily admit, I, mm-hmm. I mean, would have made him, I think, um, 26th or whatever it was. Yeah, 26th AAV, which would have been nuts. Yeah, and, and so and, and you've talked about this on Lockdown, right? You've gone over this. So they, they shouldn't have accepted that. But I think in those conversations, what they learned was, it's not just about this offer. This is just not happening. And I also know on the other side, we can get into this, kind of what Scott Boris was thinking and some of the money he thinks Soto might eventually make. And because of that, I think they did the right thing. I really do. I I hate to say it. It rips my heart out. I haven't loved the player as much as I love Juan Soto since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they did the right thing. I really believe that. Yeah, and you know, and we were talking about this also, and you were kind of someone who mentioned James Wood uh, back in April. You kind of put me – or you put me on to James Wood. I didn't really know too much about him. And then once I saw the numbers, and especially what he started off with this year in San Diego and low A down there, this guy is someone who I truly think could be a top 10 prospect when all said and done when he's getting close to the majors. And even going into the next year, like if he's in Harrisburg or, or high A Wilmington, wherever he is, I think this is someone who could be a top 10 prospect when it's all said and done. And obviously, Elijah Green right now with the Nationals. There's a lot to be excited about. But really, you're you're someone who was on James Wood from the start. You've you've marked your territory with him. And so kind of tell us about him, because this is someone who's really intriguing. He was a second round pick and just he's not really on many people's radars right now. What can you tell us about him? Yeah. So the reason I loved James Wood as early as I did is because I, I got him wrong. Right. And you always hear players talk about like you lose the game. You remember it more than the game you win. So I did the draft show for MLB Network Radio every year. um, And I uh, because of that, I basically study really intently, you know, the top 50 to 70 prospects any given year in the country coming out of high school or college, just so that we don't get stumped in our first round and our sandwich round coverage. And you're not going to be able to have a great file on everyone, but 
you know, I talk to scouts that cover these guys uh, in their areas and, and get to know these players or um, scouting directors or sometimes GMs, you know, whoever I can talk to and get thoughts on players from. And in specific to James Wood, you know, I just got him wrong. He's the type of prospect, and Elijah Green is very similar for the record, mm-hmm. that, like, I just – it's not what I gravitate toward. Yeah, These are the types of guys that become MVPs and superstars and, like, become your Aaron Judges, right? But they're so boom or bust, for lack of a better phrase. There's so much swing and miss to go along with home run potential uh, that – I, I get nervous. I prefer a little bit more quick to the ball, um, you know, short swing, contact approach, lower ceiling oftentimes, but higher mm-hmm. floor type prospects. So that's kind of what I prefer typically. Um, the problem is you miss on guys like James Wood because these end up being the great players in baseball if you hit on these players. And James Wood went outside of the top 50 not because of talent, basically because of some swing and miss concerns and also, I think, some signability stuff out of IMG. He was Elijah Green's teammate, as people know. Um, But then, within a couple of months, he'd made a swing adjustment with the Padres. And early this year was raking, looked like a different player. The -the bat-to-ball numbers, contact rate, swing and miss stuff was all down, was hitting for some power. And now you see 60 power. 60-65 run with what I believe is 50-55 hit, you know, 55 arm, 50 field. Like, it's a blue-chip elite prospect. As you just said, we're talking about one of the best prospects in the game before he graduates. You said top 10. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think he could be top five. The ceiling is he could be the number one prospect in the game when they call him up. I mean, that's what we're talking about. And they did the same thing, by the way, that was it's kind of your prototypical scouts pick with Elijah Green, which is the – he's an 18-year-old. You know, when I was kind of out or or nervous on him as a prospect in pre-draft, he um, I talked to someone who saw him strike out like six times in one weekend in high school. And that scares me. I mean, it just does. Um, I'm not a scout. I don't pretend to be. I just talk to people. And that worried me. But I'll say this. IMG Academy plays a better schedule than high school players normally do. That it's kind of almost like some college level type competition. So these are the types of guys that make me nervous, but you have to like, what, what is um, the line that uh, Bruce Arian says? No risk it, no biscuit. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just wouldn't have these guys because, and I'd never have the best prospect in the game. You know what I'm saying? I'd never have the 45 home run homegrown talent. Cause I just, I get too nervous. But now when I see that the start he got off to, you know, it was all there, the swings and misses, whatever, but in a small sample, he had a 940 ops, a 300 average, hit a couple homers. He did strike out 21 times in 12 games mm-hmm. uh, at a level where that's a little bit problematic. You hope that he makes more contact. But that's kind of the backstory on just kind of my philosophy. But James Wood right away, it was a swing adjustment with the Padres that changed everything, man. And when I saw what he was doing at that time, I think it was Elsinore maybe, but it was an A ball, if memory serves. It was, he just, it was like the bet, it was the version of him that you, you dream on right away in the minors. And I thought, okay, they fixed him. Like they got this thing right. And then you, I think went with me at one point to see him in Fredericksburg, but I saw him two or three times, maybe. Yeah. And maybe at least two or three times this year toward the end of the year as they were rallying for the playoffs. And it's amazing, man. Like he, he, he reminds me of like Giannis with the number of strides he makes getting to the rim, like coast to coast going from home to second, legging out a double. Uh, he's a really special player. 
I think he's got some feel for the outfield. He did a nice job in center the night I saw him. Eventually, we'll grow out of that, I'm sure, and be a mm-hmm. corner guy. But I'm giddy about him. I'm really, really excited. Yeah, you said something about the swing adjustment with the Padres. I'm going to get into right after this before I share that. And I want to tell you guys about my friends over at Roan. Dress shirts are tricky, and it's hard to find one that fits right while also being comfortable and matches your style. Plus, with all the hustle and bustle you got going on, you need a dress shirt that looks good enough to get the deal done at work. But it's comfortable enough to play catch with your kid after dropping him off at practice. The dress shirt was due for a radical reinvention, and Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter shirt is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible shirt known to man, and here's why. Mobility is everything. Roan is comfortable four-way stretch fabric, provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy what life throws your way from your commute to work to your 18 holes of golf. Looking good is easy. It's time to feel confident with a wrinkle-free shirt without the hassle. The Roan's wrinkle release technology, wrinkles disappear as you stretch and wear that shirt. It's that easy. In the odor-free tech, it's with Gold Fusion anti-odor technology. You'll be smelling fresh and clean all day long. And on top of that, Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can ditch the dry cleaner altogether. The commuter shirt can get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to Roan.com slash locked on and use promo code locked on to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to R-H-O-N-E.com slash locked on and use code locked on. And so, Grant, I'm bringing you back in here now because you kind of said something to where there's a lot of concern with, kind of the Nationals development side of things with prospects. And you said that with James Wood, when he went to San Diego, he they made that adjustment to him to where there was a lot of concern with him coming out of high school with this swing and miss tool. So kind of what goes into that and really fixing that issue? And why can't the Nationals seem to get lucky with that as well? Well, it's a great question. I mean, and, and honestly, it's something they've really got to figure out quickly here because they're – Embarking, as we all know, on this critical rebuild, and you can't swing and miss on some of these elite level prospects. You know, one of the reasons, if I'm being frank, that I wanted them to get as many close to the big leagues prospects as possible. Like, I loved the Dodgers trade or the the, uh, Cardinals trade, especially for these reasons, because you get guys like Jordan Walker or you get these, you know, triple A big league ready type Mm -hmm. prospects because there's less minor league development that needs to be done. One of the concerns I had, not a deal breaker, but one of my nervous, I guess, elements of this Padres trade is, you know, Robert Hassel was an A-plus ball on the precipice of being sent to double-A, but still has development to be done. James Wood is 20 and was going to be you know, at Fredericksburg to start. Um, you know, Yarlin Susana, who's got all the potential in the world, yeah. is a teenager who was at a lower level of A-ball as an 18-year-old. And so, you know, it's one thing when you can just put C.J. Abrams in the big leagues and Mackenzie Gore at the major league level and try to develop as they go with your big league staff. But there is not a great track record. I mean, I'm not breaking news here. Everyone knows this. They just haven't done a good job. The question, though, for me has always been, is it about who's in the system or not getting enough out of those players? In other words, is it the picking of the groceries and the ingredients or is it the cooking? Like, I would actually contend that while neither is anything to write home about over the last several years, they have had more of an issue drafting than they've had developing. 
Because mm-hmm. I, I just ask this question. I say, how many guys have they had that were studs that didn't develop versus like, who were their prospects? I mean, who were they taking? Like, point out the guys that missed that should have hit. They're, they're pretty few and far between. You could point to, like, Lucas Giolito as an example. He was drafted number 16 overall before he had to get the repair done coming out of Harvard Westlake. He had a chance, you know, righties don't go one, one. It doesn't happen. Like he was in that conversation at one point, but so he leaves here, goes to Chicago, becomes one of the better pitchers in baseball after a terrible year there. Does that happen here? I'm not sure that that was an example maybe where they didn't develop a guy particularly well. I mean, is Eric Fetty a back end starter? as a first round pick at a UNLV because of development, or is that kind of what he is based on stuff when they drafted him? I would say it's the second one, not the first one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, this is going to be actually a really good experiment. I think this will give us our answer. Like now you've got blue chip dudes to work with. Robert Hassel should be a 20 homer, 80 RBI, 20 steel guy. James Wood has a chance to be an all-star. Yarlin Susana has a chance to pitch at the front of a rotation. Like if, if these guys flounder or get worse after coming here, well, now you know. You had some real ingredients to cook with, and you made bad meals. I just don't think they've hit nearly enough in the draft for way, way, way too long. Yeah, and, and you know, I look back in 2019, first-round pick Jackson Rutledge out of a, a community college, I believe, down in Florida. I don't have that name. Grand Jack, yeah. Yes, and so he's still down in low A Fredericksburg. Obviously, like, he's battled injuries, but, like, I feel like that's just, you know, he's still in low A Fredericksburg. Like, that's yeah. a, a level up from rookie ball. And he was a 2019 first round pick. And I feel like that's, you know, I don't really want to get into too much with Jackson Rutledge because I think there's more exciting things to talk about in our short period of time. But I just think of that and and it's just kind of jarring to really think about. And Mason Denneberg, obviously, he's been battling some injuries as well. And he's in Fredericksburg as well. I think he was a 2018 first round pick, if memory serves correctly. But uh, Grant. There's more news, and obviously in the last week, uh, the Athletic kind of dropped the bombshell. And uh, this is something that there's been chatter about in the past, to where Ted Leonsis, as we stand here right now, he's the front runner to buy the Washington Nationals. And this is someone who, obviously, you cover two of the teams that he owns on a daily basis with the Capitals and the Wizards. And so he could be owning a third team here in D.C. And just what are your thoughts on that? And this is like the first time ever that's had to happen. An owner owning three teams in the same city. Oh my God. Yeah. So it'd be amazing. I mean, a couple things. <clears throat> the thing I care the most about is an owner that's going to come in here and spend money. Yeah. You, know, you look at the final four in baseball, it's made up of teams in the top 10 in payroll. Um, mm-hmm. Generally speaking, year in and year out, you have a pretty good bet <clears throat> to know who's going to be the last several teams standing. If you just look at the teams that spend the most money, it's not always the case. There are some outliers like the Rays do things brilliantly to overcome. There's some other organizations, but uh, as a general rule, the the majority of the teams that are left at the end of the playoffs spend a lot of money. So I I want someone willing to do that. I don't want someone who runs this thing like a coffee shop where they're counting cups and trying to make a profit. Right. I I want uh, someone who who really wants to win titles and doesn't mind spending to do that. I, I do think – I don't know what you would say about this, Ryan. I'd be curious to get your thoughts. But, you know, there's a lot of debate about Ted Leontis because, he, you know, the Caps have been so successful for so long. Yeah. And his other team, the Wizards, have not been at all. And so the, the idea is, like, he's a good owner for hockey and a bad owner for basketball, which I don't necessarily agree with, but that's kind of the logic that's out there. But I will tell you that 
I think baseball and hockey are more akin, honestly, in terms of being able to be pragmatic and patient and, you know, building up a system and, and signing some of your stars and, and uh, being somewhat forethinking maybe with how you uh, scout and invest internationally in baseball versus, you know, being able to bring someone through the, the, the minors and hockey. I, I think that um, those two sports are more similar than basketball where yeah. – do you have LeBron? Then you're not going to the conference final, you know, like <laughs> it's just a different thing. So I think you can kind of be a team builder in hockey and in baseball in a way that it's much harder to do without the super teams in basketball. Um, I don't know what you think about that, but for that reason, I would be hopeful about Leonsis. You know, I would really be interested in who his number two is because it's ideally it's someone with a ton of money in deep pockets because I, I just need someone to come in here and throw some money around. Well, actually, the the number two of this is David Rubenstein, who originally at first, when when the learners were first rumored to be selling the Nats, he was going to be in in his own camp and he was going to be making his own bid. And so as time's gone on, they've actually partnered together in this and Rubenstein's going to be his number two. Rubenstein is someone who's I've already checked the net worth on this because I'm like you and I I just care about people wanting to spend money into this organization. He's worth three point one billion dollars alone himself. And, like, obviously, I'm not going to be reaching into their pockets and talking about their cash flow and everything. That's not what I'm here to do. But, like, the money's going to be there. And I think that they will want to spend eventually. And I think something to where we don't really talk about enough with Leonsis really owning with the Wizards and the Capitals is that this is someone who wants to keep his superstars around. This is, like, look at Bradley Beal. He gave him the second biggest contract in NBA history. Does he deserve that? Absolutely not. But this is someone who's willing to keep his superstars and he's going to want them. He's going to want to make them stay here. Like he makes them feel at home in a sense. Almost. This is someone who's kept Alex Ovechkin, Bradley Beal, John Wall before his injury. This is someone who appeals to superstars almost kind of, kind of want your comments on that and kind of see if you agree. Yeah. I, I think that that is at least the perception on the outside for me would be, that the best thing about a Leonsis ownership would be he'd give you a chance to to have continuity and to keep their best players in the city, a la Ovechkin, who he early signed to a, a massive, I think it was like a 13-year contract. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, you know, obviously, the you just referenced the Beal deal. You know, the, the way that basketball works, you know, makes it a little bit easier, but it's the super-duper, super-duper, super-max. Yeah. So he's kept him there his entire career. Uh, even while, you know, a lot of us in D.C. go, eh, I don't know about that. But he is very um, loyal. I think he's very um, – he likes continuity. And I, I think that that can be a really good thing, honestly, in baseball. Um, I'd be curious to see how that works with Scott Boris. Like, there is not a Boris in either of those other two sports, right, where – yeah. I'm going to take my guy to market and and it's cute that you want to keep him. It's kind of like the mindset it feels like sometimes, but yeah, I think in jet, like I think you could do a lot worse than Ted Leonsis. I'm quite sure of that. Um, I would be excited about the possibility for a few reasons. Like my mm-hmm. hope is that it, I kind of wanted our own Steve Cohen, like some guy that swoops in of here, who's <laughs> the richest owner in, in sports, you know, like Bezos or something. And yeah. he just is going to buy every player. But that's probably not realistic. So a guy who's you know won a championship in D.C., obviously the city and sports in this city means a lot to him. Um, mm-hmm. For that reason, I think you can be excited if it is Ted Leonsis. 
Yeah, so thank you guys for making Locked On Nationals your first listen today. Now, for your second listen, checked out, check out Locked On Sports today. From the games that matter the most to the biggest stories in sports, go beyond the scoreboard and behind the scenes with local experts and insights only Locked On can provide. Locked On Sports today, available on this app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And so, Grant, we're in the last stretch of this episode unfortunately we got to get ready for a radio program today but to kind of end up on this I I was thinking about this a lot and this is kind of going to come out of nowhere but Josiah Gray this is someone to where we traded for in the or we traded for in the Max Scherzer and Trey Turner deal and we got Kiber Ruiz Josiah Gray Gerardo Carrillo and those were kind of the three guys that we got back in return with Josiah Gray and Key Bear being the two main prospects of that deal. And, you know, when, you, when you're a top 50 prospect, according to MLB Pipeline, a lot of people are thinking, like, that this guy has ace upside. That's obviously it's not, like, set in stone, but this is something to where you have high expectations for a guy. And this is – he led the, the majors in home runs this season. He led the NL in walks this season. He had a five ERA. This was someone to where we just haven't really seen the development in the major leagues yet. And I hit on this already a couple days ago. But like, who do like? I don't know if the question is who do I blame in this, but like, just what's going on? What are your thoughts with that? Is this a Jim Hickey issue, or is this just uh, hey, he's not who we thought he was going to be? Got to unmute your mic. <laughs> uh, it's only two and a half years into the pandemic. It's all good. I got to figure out this whole video conference thing. Uh, no, I, I, you know, <clears throat> I do wish they had a younger, more forethinking pitching coach, pitching mind. Um, I, personally, yes. that's just my own proclivity. Yes. Having said that, I don't think you can pin it. Like pitching coaches, hitting coaches, they help, especially with young players. I mean, they should be developing these guys. But, like, you can't blame or credit them for everything, right? As an organization, though, it is fair to say that Josiah Gray has not developed the way that you would have liked. I'm still very high on him, as you know, because I I believe in stuff, right? And if you look at, on a good day, his slider is one of the better pitches of its kind in baseball. If you look at the swing and miss rate early this season on – the slider, even the curveball and some starts. I mean, some really, really impressive totals. My frustration is, you know, he led the league in home runs allowed and walks this year. His fielding independent pitching was worse from 5.7 to 5.8. His mm-hmm. whip was worse from 1.34 to 1.36. His hits per nine were worse from 8 to 8.2. His home run rate was a little bit worse, 2.2 to 2.3. Still walked four per nine. A couple more strikeouts, but like you should have gotten better. This should have been a growth year, and it was not. It was kind of a flat year, if not a slight regression in some ways for him. And next year is now critical for him to become what I believe is a middle of the rotation big league starter. Like times where he looks like a two, probably a three, something like that. Yeah. Um, the question for me is, can he throw more changeups and can he get that pitch down to a point where he feels good about using it? and some hitter counts so that he can get some swings and misses because that's going to be critical. I mean, it's not to say that he doesn't have three pitches because there are days where he throws the slider in the curve as well as the fastball. But I think he needs to, to hone that change up. I think that's important for Josiah. And this coming year, one of the biggest storylines for this team is going to be his development. 
Uh, I would think long and hard, though, about what they're doing organizationally at the big league level as far as pitching philosophy, pitching development, because this is a youth movement. You've got Cavalli, you've got Gore, you've got Gray. Do you have the best person on the planet to help those guys become great starting pitchers? If you don't, then you need to continue to search. Like, that's the whole gig here. So that should be a major priority for them this offseason. Yeah, I totally agree with that, too. And I saw I saw uh, something the other day where a Nats fan was posting a question to where, like, who has the higher upside, Mackenzie Gore, Josiah Gray, or Cade Cabali? And uh, I'm not really going to ask you this question because we're short in time, and I want to ask you something else. But just to get my opinion out there, I think it's Mackenzie Gore, in a sense, to where this is someone who was lighting it up his first two uh, months in the major leagues this season with the Padres. And obviously with the elbow injury, that threw everything off. But uh, I want to end on this, Grant, because – this is something to where I kind of threw out to the listeners the other day. I threw this bone out there, and uh, they were kind of eating it up like piranhas. <laughs> Who is the face of the Washington Nationals? If you were to say right now on the Major League Club, who is the face? Wow. <laughs> That's depressing to have to think about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, we are talking about a team – that had Lane Thomas as its hitter of the year and Erasmo Ramirez as the MVP. Year. And yeah. Erasmo Ramirez was our Cy Young. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I'll go Erasmo Ramirez. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say, I'll say CJ Abrams. Yeah. Fair answer. I, I think it's important that it clicks. Like, he needs to be really good for this thing to work and for them to turn it around fast. I think he is a really exciting talent. He's got an electrifying skill set. He's a burner. So why not? Let's make him the face going into next year. Oh, Grant, this is a ton of fun today, man. And I, and I agree with you, by the way. I think C.J. Abrams has to be the face of the franchise moving forward because if not, then uh, we're in trouble. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Uh, but you guys can all follow Grant at Grant H. Paulson over on Twitter. You can listen to the Grant and Danny show from 2 to 6.30 p.m. every day on 106.7 The Fan, as well as the Odyssey app. But thank you guys for making Locked On Nationals your first listen. Now for the next listen, check out the Locked On Sports Today podcast, the biggest stories of the day, plus instant reactions, big game recaps, and the take of the day. Available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Grant, I end off every interview with what's for dinner tonight. It's a great question. Um, actually, my wife already told me. It's some type. I don't know the exact name. It's a pasta and chicken dish from HelloFresh. Oh, yeah, go. so there's there's pasta, there's chicken, and it's a HelloFresh, like whatever they call their Hall of Fame meal. But apparently, <laughs> she says we got before and I love. So I'm steamed up for that. Let's go. All right, we got a radio program to do. Thanks for hopping on, Grant, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Have a good day, everybody, and enjoy the rest of the day. Go Nats.